JT has read our passage for us from Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. I've mentioned several times over the years the, the gift of hospitality that my mother and dad had. We never knew who was going to show up for dinner, Sunday afternoons, holidays. You just never knew who was going to be, you know, Glenn and Betty Ann's house uh, sharing a meal with us. And, um, and I, remember, I remember on some of those occasions, Dad praying, you know, saying the blessing before we would share a meal. Um, I don't remember those the way I would like to. Um, what, I, what I remember, I was talking to Susan about it this morning. Um, what I remember one time was being, and more than once, okay, but when, when Dad's youngest grandchild was born to my youngest sister, um, who she never thought she was going to have children, so, you know, Caden, bless his heart, Caden, if you for some reason might be hearing this, which I highly doubt, um, forgive me, brother, for talking about you, but you were a spoiled little brat for a long time, all right? Okay? Just saying. Um, so what I was really frustrated about was I remember specifically one, I think it was Thanksgiving. I don't remember the exact occasion. I just remember our, 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 that living room was full of people. I mean, there were family members there. There were guests there. There were folks there. And I remember just being excited about the opportunity to pray over that meal and over that gathering there, all right? And I remember, I remember, I just had this sense of anticipation. Um, and I remember Dad asking Caden to say the blessing. And Caden was little bitty. Took a little urging to ask Caden to say the blessing. And then he prayed, God our Father, God our Father, once again, once again, thank you for our blessings. Thank you for our blessings. Amen. And I went. <laughs> Thank you, Brenda. It was special. Um, I just, I know some of you are going to think, well, that is so cute. And I guess it was. But nobody, I don't think, learned anything that day about how to pray. Because we learn how to pray from listening to other people pray. That, that's, how, that's how we learn. All right? If, if we had been raised, if some of us had been raised a few generations ago, I don't know that that prayer would have been sung necessarily. But that prayer by little Caden may say a whole lot more about the spiritual health of, of, of many of us than we'd like to admit. Now... That prayer prayed a hundred years ago might have been, Father, we beseech thee and we bless thee for thy bountiful blessings which thou hast poured out upon us and dost continually do by thy grace. I mean, if, if what we learned to pray came from a father or a mother who was reading out of the old King James Version, that three-year-old was throwing out these and thous like they were going out of style. You get where I'm coming from? We, we learn lots of times culturally and in a time capsule how to pray. I was thinking this morning, not just about Caden's little prayer. I was thinking, man, I have been all week. I've been thinking back over, you know, the last 30, 31, 32 years here of saints that 
I learned really to pray from. All right? And some of you may have those same memories. I asked a couple of brothers this morning, do you remember how G.W. McDowell used to pray? And lots of times, I, I would almost, I could pray G.W.'s prayer before he did because I knew what he was going to say. Because he said a lot of the same things. But he said them like Jesus was right there. Just like he was right there. And I realized not long after I got here why G.W. prayed that way. Because one of the older saints that I would go visit was Miss Ola McDowell, who was G.W.'s mother. Now, G.W. was old when I got here. And his mother was way, way old, okay? And, and I don't remember, Miss Ola lived on Red Oak Drive over there in those apartments next to Southern, um, I mean, next to Northern Middle School. I remember her apartment. I remember her living room. I remember her sitting in her chair, and I would go in to visit with her and pray with her. And I would, I would get on my knees in front of her chair and hold her hand. I can still smell her lotion. And the way she prayed for me as I was there to pray for her. It was almost a joke. We learn to pray by the people around us. We learn to pray as we should from God's Word. There's a little booklet on my desk. And I looked out in the bookstore this morning. There's a lot of books in our, in our resource center back there about how to pray. I have one little booklet on my desk that's not about how to pray. It's what to do if you don't want to pray. That's the title of the book. It's a little booklet. What do we do when we don't want to pray? And I think Ephesians chapter 3 will help us immensely in that. It's, it's what JT read just a minute ago. Here's the deal. We do what we do because of what we love. Right? Our affections drive us. We make time to do what we want to do. We use the money to do what we want to do. We make the sacrifices to do what we want to do. And so those same truths apply to our prayer life. So I think what we're going to learn, hopefully... I've been praying, praying that we would over the last, uh, really the last several weeks as I look forward to this section of Ephesians chapter 3, is, is not just how to pray, but that God would grow our want to in praying. Because we're going to see in this passage, listen carefully to this, Paul does not pray for nor teach us to pray that we would love Jesus more. He does not pray that we would love Jesus more. Now, that's a good thing to pray. And that's certainly a good thing to want. But even just now in the song that we just sung, those first words make me a little uncomfortable in that song. You dance over me. I'm amazed by your love for me. But that song's focus is not on me. It is on this extravagant, 
indescribable, immeasurable love that God has for us. And that is not something that we can sing up, although we should sing about it. That is not something that we can build up by emotion, although it should drown us in tears. It is something we will only come to know the love of God as we should through the power of God. And that's why Paul prays in this prayer and teaches us to pray in this prayer for power. The power to get it when it comes to understanding God's love for us. The love that God has, the love that God is, as 1 John tells us. So, let's look at it. Paul begins, as I mentioned last week in the first part of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he, and then he breaks away from it to talk about his own personal ministry, the stewardship that God has given him in the gospel, and this mystery that he talks about, the mystery of Christ through Christ, the mystery that Gentiles now are fellow heirs with the Jewish people, that they are members of the same body, partakers in the same promises, that God is at work through Christ creating one new man, as we have seen, and that through this church that he is creating, God is going to hold it up before principalities and powers, I believe for the, before the seen and unseen world, as a, as a demonstration of his manifold wisdom, he's going to show off the church. It's incredible that that this is here in God's Word. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. That's amazing that, that that truth is there. But it is there. And it's that eternal purpose. So Paul is praying for this reason. And so to understand for this reason that he says again down there in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. As he prays that, we have to go back and say, okay, for what reason, Paul, are you saying for this reason? And I think as the Apostle Paul does that, he, he really focuses in on a couple of things in these first two or three chapters. One is the gospel unity that Christ has accomplished. The second thing that he, that he sees as he prays and looks back through eternity through the eyes of the Holy Spirit is this spiritual structure that God is building up. And thirdly, he sees this spiritual family that God is birthing, that God is creating. So he prays for those reasons. He prays for the gospel unity that he looks back all the way in chapter 1. This gospel unity that causes him to look back, how far back? From before the foundation of the world. Because that's where God chose us in Christ, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world. He looks back to eternity past. Then he looks ahead to eternity to come. The fullness of time, he says. He calls it the fullness of time in chapter 1, verse 8, where he's going to bring all things united into Christ. He says in verse 22, he's going to bring all things under the feet of Christ as the head to his church. So Paul looks back to eternity past. He looks forward to eternity to come. He also then looks around him. As he looks in his own heart even and says, you know what? I'm like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, except Paul says it's worse than that. We're dead men walking. Paul looks around himself and he sees humanity dead in its sins and its trespasses. 
He looks around and he sees people who are separated, alienated, hopeless, godless, hating each other and hating God. So that's the situation. He looks around and he sees that. But even in the midst of that, he looks up and he sees that in Christ, this wall of hostility has been broken down. First, the hostility between holy God and sinful men, and then between sinful men and sinful men as they are reconciled in Christ. He himself is our peace, Paul says. He himself has broken down that wall of hostility in his own flesh. So Paul looks back in eternity past as God has called us in Christ before anything else happened. He looks forward to when God's going to consummate all of this in Christ in the fullness of time. He looks in within to his own sin and the sin of the people around him. He looks up and he sees the cross of Jesus. He sees the wall of hostility broken. He sees all those Old Testament ordinances, circumcision, dietary, all those rules and regulations that were put in place. He sees them done away with because Christ has fulfilled them all. And he sees in that that God has brought near those who were far off. So then look at verse 19 in chapter 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And you're being built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So there's this gospel unity. He's praying for that reason. Why, why would he pray for something that Christ has already done? Keep that question in mind. Then he says, I'm praying for this reason because of this spiritual structure that's being built. I just referenced it. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And he says this whole structure is being joined together like the joints in the bricks. Like the two befores put together, like the floor joist and the ceiling structure and all that being put together. And he says, in him, in Christ, you're being built into a spiritual dwelling place or a dwelling place by the spirit where God is going to dwell. That's that's what this church is, church. It's the dwelling place of God's glory. True for us as individual believers, true for us corporately as a church. That's he says, for that reason, he's praying He recognizes that it's only going to be done through the power of God. He sees the church being made up of what Peter refers to as living stones. We are hard-headed. He hews us out of a rock, out out of stubbornness, out of idolatry. He cuts us out of that rock and he begins to shape us by his grace into these living stones. And he fits us together by the Spirit of God into this dwelling place. And it's a spiritual temple. It's a spiritual temple made up of every race, every language, every tongue, every tribe. That's what he's building. How's that going to be done? Only by his power. Only by his power. And so Paul prays for that. And then it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul sees God as this, this, this eternal Father. Now, the English translation of this is difficult, okay? The ESV, as, 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 as you've read, as, as some of you and some of us may have memorized, you know, I bow my knees before the Father from whom have, every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, the Greek words here between Father and family are really, really close and and. It can be translated, some, some scholars tell us, as those who are fathered. The point is this. We have to understand the context of everything that Paul is saying. There is a sense, all right, we hear this often, and I'm sure you've heard it too, 
You know, there's a sense, I guess, in the sense of him being the creator, that God in one sense is father of everyone. We are all made with the image of God, right? Imago Dei. That's why we are called to respect and love and reconcile to one another because every single human that draws a breath is made in that image of God. But we also understand or should remember what Jesus said as he spoke to those Pharisees, those who were outside of faith in Christ. Your father is the devil. There is a sense in which God is father to those who are his adopted children by faith in Christ, by his grace. And I think that's the context. That's clearly, it's clearly that's what Paul's talking about here. He's, he's the father of every family in heaven and every family on earth that is in Christ. We are all bound together. Colors, tribes, nations, tongues. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a spiritual reality here. And it's going to be an eternal reality there. And he is the father of this family. It's, it's, a, it's a family that he is creating. It's a family that he is putting together. He is the father of glory, or he's the glorious father, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 17. He's the father through whom we have access, to whom we have access, through the Spirit in Christ, he says in 2.18. So he's this father that we come to, as Jesus said. It's, it's what Paul said in Romans, that we cry, Abba, Father. We call him Daddy. By that grace that he's poured out on us in Christ. And so Paul says he's the model father in one sense, yes, but he's the spiritual father. Later on in Ephesians 4, listen to what he says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope, which were called through one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's the same thing Jesus said in Luke 11. He's talking to us as earthly dads. He said, which of you, if his son asked for a fish, instead would give him a serpent? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's, that's who we pray to, church. That's who loves us. That's who's adopted us. This is the Father we have a relationship now with and we have access to through Christ. So here's why Paul says for this reason. These supernatural realities, I, I think in pictures, all right? And I, and I thought about taking a picture of my journal um, from where I was just thinking through this last weekend and kind of praying through that. And you really can't see it, but I've got these little stick figures in my journal up here at the top because I like pictures, all right? I'm a picture person. And I've got these little stick figures in my journal. And this just really helped me get the picture of what Paul is praying for here. I have two little stick figures in separate squares. And then I have a cross in between those two. And below that, I then have two stick figures in a single circle. We've been brought together in Christ. And then I have these two little stick figures on their knees praying together. And then I have them... Two stick figures with their hands held together. It's a cute picture. You'd like it. But it's, it, to me, it's, it's deep because it's this picture of, of what we see here. And Paul says for this reason, there's this gospel unity on one hand that Christ has accomplished. There's a spiritual entity on the other hand that is being built. 
It's what he has accomplished. It's what he is building. And these supernatural realities in the heavenlies are only realized here in our lives and in our fellowship and in our realm, this side of heaven, through the power of God. That's how it happens. That's why Paul prays for us to have power. And that's why he is bowing his knees before the Father. And it literally, these spiritual realities, bring him to his knees. Bring him to his knees. Paul is a good Jew. Have you ever seen those pictures of the Jews praying at the Wailing Wall? They're at that, at that tabernacle, at that temple compound in Jerusalem. They're all standing. Because in the Jewish faith, you, don't, you, don't, you stand to pray. Paul is taken to his knees in light of this picture of God's purposes, in light of this picture of God's grace, in light of this picture of God's love. So for this reason, I bow my knees, he says, before the Father, from whom every spiritual family, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And then he says that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you. According to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened, he says. It's, it's those words where we looked at last week, that word for, um, for that energy and for that power, those words put together that Paul likes to combine together. Paul is praying that we would have power to comprehend the love of God and that we would have that power where we need it most. Where is that? In the inner man. That he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So as we think about praying for this Spirit's power, think about understanding and grasping the love of God, it starts really deep in the heart, and it comes through the Spirit of God who is given to us as we trust in Christ. And notice the Trinitarian theology that's here. Don't miss that. Notice how this picture of the mysterious Trinity that we hold to and believe in, it is the Father who chooses us and hears us. It is Christ who dwells in our hearts through faith and is the Holy Spirit who brings all that together. He inhabits, He empowers, and He enlightens. Paul is looking at that and just seeing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at work in this amazing picture that's before us. It's power through His Spirit and it's power in the inner man. What is that inner man? Well, it's what the four, sport, the four spiritual laws little track would call that throne room of our heart. All right? If you're a seaman, it's the bridge of that ship that you're steering in your life. It's the steering wheel. It's whatever analogy you want to use. It's the inner man. It's that part of us where our affections are seated, where our, where our lives are directed. It's that true north. It's that compass, whatever you want to call it. Paul said in Romans 7, 22, that in my inner man, I delight in God's law, but with my flesh, I'm rebelling against it. That's my paraphrase. But in 7, 22, he says, in my inner man, in my heart, I love God's law. It's that part of us that the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians, that as the outer man is deteriorating, the inner man is being renewed day by day. So it's this picture of that inner person in us. And this idea of dwelling, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, he says later on, that this power that we know in our inner man in this place where the dwelling of God takes, where the dwelling of Christ is, what is he talking about there? Here's where we also need to be a little careful. Because so much of our theology about the character of God 
is based on, a, a, I believe, a misunderstanding that all salvation is, is inviting Jesus into your heart. That's all you need to do is just invite Jesus into your heart. And there's an element of truth in that. We absolutely should understand that. But where we often go so, so far astray, where we, where we go wrong is, is this idea that, you know, this shallow understanding of salvation will also produce in us then a shallow understanding of what it means to know Christ and to repent and to trust Him and walk with Him. This, this shallow understanding sometimes of what it means to be saved leads to a shallow understanding of what it is to walk in the light of that salvation, right? He wants us going deeper than God our Father, God our Father. He wants us going deep, deep into what it means to be in Christ, reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And so he prays for this this spiritual power in us, and he prays for, notice what he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the idea there in the Greek word is much stronger than the idea of just, it's not someone who comes for a visit, it's someone who moves in and takes up residence. All right? That's the idea. To dwell means to just that, to dwell, to make that place your home. So think about that for just a second. Think about what it means to, to, to make a place home. It takes a long time, does it not? Now you might, okay, if you're building your own dream house, then maybe you move into it and it's just what you want it to be. But for a lot of people, that's not always the way it works. All right? I'm thinking about a little house that's for sale right now up on Rosewood Drive above us. Mr. Jones lived in that house. It was, he was, I think, was he not, Susan, like the second person that lived in that neighborhood or something? That house has been there a long time. It's a little bitty single frame house. Carl and his wife just lived there forever. They've lived there as long as I've been in Pine Lakes and a long time before. Mr. Jones died a couple of months ago. Kids came in and cleaned out the house. That's all they did. They got the stuff out of the house and now it's for sale. It can be yours. But let me tell you what you're going to need to do when you go in there, all right? Because I've been in that house several times, all right? You're probably going to want to replace the carpet. It's been in there at least 40 years. The walls are kind of a pale green, kind of what the old building over there used to look like. Yeah, you know, kind of a barf green. Um, Heating system was recently replaced, but you're going to probably need to work on that a little bit. Plumbing, well, plumbing's old. I don't know, but there may be a pile of trash down in the basement. They probably got most of that out, but who knows. How's that old? There's, there's a shed back in the backyard. I have no idea what you might find in that shed. But when you come in there, it's going to take some time for that to be the home that you want it to be. Trash is going to have to be hauled off. Old things are going to have to be torn out and replaced. New things are going to have to be put in. It's going to need paint. It may need some structural work. I don't know about Carl's house. I imagine that part of it's pretty good. Here's my point. That to make a house a home requires hard work, diligence, time, effort, attention. And Jesus does that for us. The trash is hauled out. The old things are torn out. 
New things are brought in. That's what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Yes, when you trust in Jesus, He comes into your life. You receive the Holy Spirit. Done. But for it to become His home requires the power of God, the work of God, the grace of God. And so Christ comes in by His Spirit and takes up residence in us, and He takes all that trash out. He changes out that ugly wallpaper. He fixes those leaks. He replaces the plumbing. He turns that place into a residence appropriate for Him. That's what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And that's the goal. That's the work that He's going to do. And how does He do that? It comes from this limitless power that comes from the very glory of God, the very character of God, the resources of God, it says in verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, the riches of his, of his character, the riches of his competence, the riches of who he is, the riches of what his purposes are. And, and all of that is according to the riches. Paul says in chapter 117 that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace. Amen? That's who he is. He says in verses 18 that the glorious inheritance in the saints is, is based in his riches, in the wealth that is in Christ. It says in Romans 10, verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. He is the same Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Paul, back in chapter 1, was captivated by the reality of this inheritance that is ours in the saints, coming from the riches of God. And in Philippians 4:19, may he give us, Paul prays, may he supply every need according to what? His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I could go to my father, and as deeply as he loved me, I could have asked him for a Porsche, and he would have looked at me like I had five heads. He'd have probably knocked three of them off. He wouldn't do that. But Dad didn't have the resources. He, didn't, he couldn't do that. With every, every spiritual blessing that God promises us, that's, he has everything and even more that we need in that. We will see that as we close out this beautiful prayer. So how do we pray for each other in light of this? May I suggest that this week when you gather in your life groups, we get on our knees first? Just a suggestion. You don't have to. There's nothing magical about the posture. But for this reason, I bow my knees. Humbly acknowledging your greatness. Humbly acknowledging, God, in the very core of my being, how badly I need you to continue the renovation, the work that you're doing in Christ. Could we just pray for one another? I have prayed this prayer for, for, for us as a church at, at least once, sometimes many times, every day for the last seven days. You can find no better prayer, I believe, than this to pray for each other. Please. This is how, this is how we pray for each other's affections and for our actions. And Paul prays that Christ, by His Spirit, would be allowed to settle down in our hearts and make it His home. And it would be the throne from which He controls us and drives us and changes our ambitions. Let's pray for each other this way. So Paul prays for us to have that power. And then he prays, secondly, for us to have that power for something that seems very unusual. He prays that we would have that power so that we could grasp the vast, unlimited love of Christ. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
would have the strength, he says, or the power, he says, with all of the saints to grasp this incredible love of Christ. And then he uses these words to describe what really can't be described. I think about, how do you go to somebody and explain what you saw at the Grand Canyon? How do I explain the sunset that I saw last week? How do I explain the glory of what really cannot be put into words? But Paul does it anyway. He puts these words here that some commentators say, well, they're not really meant to describe the love. They're just used as a picture of just how impossible it is to describe it. Yeah, that may be true. But he says, I want you to have the strength with all of the saints to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. And then he says, to know what you can't know. (laughs) To know what surpasses knowledge. It's, It's just astounding to hear Paul pray this. And to realize that it is God's deepest desire to answer that prayer for us. So he prays for us to have the power to grasp this unlimited, vast love of Christ. Now he says this is a love in which we are already rooted and grounded, okay? It's important we recognize that. Again, this is something that we have now in Christ and something that he wants us to have even more of. It says that in love he predestined us before the foundation of the world for adoption to himself in Ephesians 1.5. This is the reality. We are established. We are secure. We cannot be shaken. We cannot be pulled up. Jesus said nothing will snatch us out of his hands. We are absolutely secure in that. I was thinking about what the psalmist said in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I was praying that this morning for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We're secure. We are rooted and grounded in love. And yet, Paul prays that our understanding of that love would, would just be expounded in just an amazing way. He said this love is so limitless that it cannot be measured by human means. So let's think about that for a second. Little Caden is way closer to right than he understands when he says, I love you this much. And God would say that. I love you this much. That's, that's the breadth. That's the width of it. How wide is it? Well, the Apostle Paul has already told us that it's wide enough to go from Jew to Gentile, which even in our crazy, messed up, divided culture, we can't imagine the width that divided them. It's wide enough to reach that. It's, it's, it's that wide. It's that broad, if you will. That's the breadth of the love of Christ. What about, what about the length of it? The breadth and the length. Well, I've already talked about it. It goes from eternity past before the foundation of the world to eternity to come when Jesus consummates it all. It goes that far. Well, what about the height? It It reaches to the heavens, the psalmist said. Your love reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness, it stretches to the skies. And how low can it go? As low as I am. As low as as our broken world and broken souls are. It goes low enough that God was willing to leave the glory of heaven and wrap himself in human flesh and come this far down. This far. 
That's, it, it can't be measured. Is it in pounds? Is it in acres? Is it in watts? Paul says you can't measure what can't be measured, but let me tell you how, how, how broad and how long and how high and how deep it is. And he says, this love is so different that you really cannot even know it by human intellect in verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I don't even know how to preach that. It's, it's, it's the love that we, we receive, that we gain from no merit of our own, and then we just start growing in it. We just start growing in it. And over the days and weeks and months and years, that love working in us by God's grace makes this, this frail human body a dwelling place where, where Jesus is pleased to be, where he is pleased to, to take up residence and, and make his home. You know, I think about I think about GW's family even as I think about that. I think about Miss Ora. Miss Ora McDowell is one of our. I guess she's the only. Well, she's not the only charter member left, but she's certainly the oldest over at Roxburgh Nursing Center. Most of the time, she's not going to have any idea that who you are. Her eyes still perk up a little bit when I come in and I'll talk to her. We'll sing a hymn together and see she still knows those words. And and when I pray with her, now you gotta you gotta picture this. Alright? Here's a sister in Christ that might weigh seventy five pounds. She's frail. She is literally falling apart physically on the outside. And there has not been ever any bitterness, any hardness, any cynicism. There's always been just a sweet, sweet spirit of a giant. Because as her outward man is and has been deteriorating now for a long, long, long time. Her inner man has constantly and is still being renewed day by day. So that when I pray with her, her mouth moves. Sounds come out. There's a yes. There's an amen. That's what it means for Christ to take up residence in our lives and to dwell in our hearts through faith. That's what it means to be a spiritual giant. Even as your outward flesh is deteriorating and you don't see like you used to and you don't hear like you used to and I can't remember GW's prayers like I want to. And we could go on, right? We could go on and on with that list, that litany of our frailty. And it is by the work of God's grace through the power of His Holy Spirit, literally the power that raised Jesus from the grave, that we then can continue to mature and grow in Christ. And that's what Paul really is talking about when he says in verse 19 that, that, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. 
How can we know a love that can't be known? How can we measure a love that can't be measured? How can we be filled with the fullness of God? It's a phrase that describes spiritual maturity. It's a phrase that describes the sanctification process in the life of a believer. From the first time the breath of God that saves us through Christ is breathed into us by His Spirit until the time that that last breath leaves us in this earth and we're in His presence. It's that process of growing up in Jesus. That's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. That's what Paul's talking about there when he says that we would be strengthened with his power in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That's growing up in Christ, church. That's growing up, Dad. It's growing up, Mom. It's growing up, teenager, to be that mature believer in Christ. That's what Paul is praying for. And the foundation of all of that is the fact that we are rooted and grounded not in us and not in what we do, but in the love that God has for us. Can't be put better than what John did. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. And gave his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Wow. So this is not a prayer that would, that where Paul is saying, Jesus, help those guys love you more. It's a good thing to pray, but it does not start there. It does not start there. This is a prayer that asks God to give us the spirit power that we need to grasp the reality of the love that he has for us. And there is no better prayer that we could pray for each other than this one. That's why, that's the, that's the application. Pray this prayer every day this week for each other. For some specifically, maybe. For our church. Pray that we would have the strength and the power together, see, together in the fellowship, because it is as we are experiencing the love of Christ for us that the love of Christ then is expelled back out to each other. So together it grows, that together we would have the strength to grasp with all of the saints what is, the, what is this amazing dimension of God's love for us. Pray that for each other. Pray that. So I'll give you just three quick Points of application. One, just meditate on this passage. Memorize it. It's not hard. I, I, I think I have. I'm pretty sure I have. Memorize this passage this week. Just start one verse at a time. Just one verse at a time. And work your way through that. Memorize this prayer so we can then turn. Just pray it as we're driving down the road. Lord, I pray for John. I just pray that he would be rooted and grounded in your love and that God in his relationship within that life group, he would have the, the, the power of you, Lord, to grasp the love that you have for him. Just how, just how wide and long and high and deep it is. Just pray that for each other. Meditate on this passage and then rest in it. Stand in it. Sit in it. Lay in it. Rest in it. This is our security, church. This is our security. Because Paul would later just, clear, he couldn't make it any clearer. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God for us in Christ Jesus. That's our security. So let's meditate on it, memorize it, pray it, and rest in it. Let's pray together. Father, we do bless you today and thank you for every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. 
And we thank you this morning, Lord, for your love. Oh God, how wide, how vast, how measureless is this love that you have for us. So Father, we pray this morning that out of the riches of your glory, you would grant us, Lord, to be strengthened with your power so that we can grasp this love. And we pray, God, that together within this fellowship, Lord, we may not be able to measure it, but we would see it lived out, carried out, and expressed, this love. Father, again, we pray this morning for families, individuals, nations. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in each of these, in every one of them. Father, I pray before we finish that any soul in this room that has not by faith reached out and received the love that you have for them in Christ, Lord, that your spirit would do that work in their souls right now. Father, every single one of us know that you so loved us that you gave your son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Every kid that sings God our Father can probably say that. But Father, I pray right now that if there's someone in this room that has never repented of their sin and by faith reached out to receive that grace and goodness that you have for us in Christ, that they would do that. That Father, like Isaiah, they would say, I am a, I am a man of unclean lips and I can't clean it up myself. And that, Father, by your grace, they would just receive that forgiving touch, that white, hot, loving touch of forgiveness and grace and be made a new creature in Christ. I pray for that this morning, Lord. And I pray that your church, Lord, we will never get over it. I pray we would never get over it. And I pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.